0: I've always loved Christmas time. Maybe it's my fond memories from childhood. Memories of family and friends gathered around the dining room table. Cold winter evenings snuggled by the fire. How many of you like the Christmas time? Two or three of you. Okay, okay. I see, I see your hands now. <laughs> Maybe it's just the festive lights, the jolly music, the Christmas carols. It seems like there's something magical about Christmas. Tinsel and lights and trees and decorations and Santa and elves and reindeer and sleigh bells. What kid doesn't look forward to Christmas morning running down the stairs and over to the big fireplace to check in the stockings to see what Santa put in those stockings when he came down the chimney in the middle of the night while you were asleep and to see that he took the cookies and milk that you put out for him. Maybe that, maybe that was a few generations ago, but you still hear those stories, right? But Right here, perhaps, is just a bit of a problem. A tinge of sadness to the joy of Christmas. Not that it's such a fun and happy time, but it's this magical aspect of Christmas. And kids, close your ears for a second. Because there's a point in life for many of us, not all of us, but there's a point in life when we get to a point and we realize that Santa Claus is just kind of a story. Yeah, there was a there was a historical figure that named Saint Nicholas. Well, he wasn't named Saint Nicholas. They called him a saint later. There was a man named Nicholas and he was a historical figure and he had a, a a reputation for for doing good things. But the Santa Claus that we have today with the elves and the toy factory and the North Pole and the sleigh that flies over the moon is just as much of a fairy tale as any of the best of them. But we tell ourselves a story to make ourselves feel good. Make money. Yeah, make ourselves some money. (laughs) Oh, yes. We tell it to our children, maybe, to get them to behave better. We go to the store, or we turn on the radio and we hear... Here comes Santa Claus and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And right along with it, they play joy to the world away in a manger. And somehow, when we, some of us, outgrow that belief in Santa Claus, some of us seem to outgrow our belief in the Christ child, too. After all, his story was so long ago, so far away. Shepherds and wise men and a star shining above the stable and a tiny babe laying in a manger. It all seems just as magical and mystical as the reindeer pulling a sleigh over the moon or elves making toys in a cold North Pole workshop. Now, of course, we don't teach that in church. If we did, why would we even come to church? Except maybe to sing happy songs and make ourselves feel good, the same reason we might go to a Christmas concert. But is that why we come to church? to celebrate, make-believe? Is that all? Who was this baby who was born in Bethlehem anyway? And why do we still celebrate his life even today? It's true, just like the story, the ancient story of Nicholas, who later was called Saint Nicholas. The celebration that we have today of Santa Claus is hardly anything like the original story. And in many ways, the same thing has happened to the Christmas story of Jesus. The, the idea of a babe born in the middle of winter on December 25, the nativity scene with the shepherds and the wise men kneeling around a perhaps a, a 12th century wooden European wooden stable. It's a far cry from what Jesus birth actually, probably looked like. But the story of Jesus' birth has not come to us through centuries of tradition, embellishments. Sure, it has had plenty of that. But it's come to us through firsthand accounts, written down and preserved through years in the Bible, which I believe to be the Word of God. Not only that, but I want to submit to you, my friends, that there is an even more compelling account of his birth, life, death, and resurrection. Not an account written in the Gospels. Yes, of course, that's as compelling as perhaps you could get. But if you could get more compelling than that, it would would be an account that was written 700 years before Jesus was born. If I sat down to write a biography of someone's life, maybe a few years after they had passed away. It would be a small feat. But most anyone, with given enough diligence, could probably do that, especially if the person perhaps kept a diary. Maybe there were lots of people who knew him. You could easily write a biography of someone who lived in the past. But which one of you wants to volunteer to write a biography of someone who's going to live in the future? Someone who's not even born yet, to tell the story of their life. I wouldn't do it. Would you? But we find one. We find one in the Old Testament. In fact, we find many pieces of this prophetic narrative all through the Old Testament. Perhaps the first piece that we find is in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. It's said, of course, in the middle of another story, the story of the fall of Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden. And Adam comes and speaks with Adam... Uh, God comes and speaks with Adam and Eve there in the Garden, asking them, Why have you done this? And the man blames the woman. And the woman blames the snake and blames God. And then God speaks... And he begins to give a promise. And in this promise, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God says to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God, speaking to the devil who is In in, embodied in this snake makes a promise not so much to the devil as to the human race that one day someone would come the seed of the woman the descendant of the woman who would crush the head of that serpent who would break the power of sin the power that we as the human race had voluntarily put ourselves under, he would come and break that power. God renewed his promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He gave the promise again to David that a descendant would come through the line of David who would bring God's blessing to every nation. But it is through the prophet Isaiah, perhaps unlike any other prophet before or since, But God gave a special message. He lifted the veil, as it were, of the future and predicted the life of Jesus in astonishing detail. Now, many of us know that as Christians. And yet, when we sit down to actually read the book of Isaiah, it can sometimes be a bit daunting, perhaps even slightly disappointing, to read and be puzzled by the prophecies that we find. Because you see, it's not written as a biography. It doesn't say in the year 4 BC that a baby will be born in Bethlehem and this and this and this. It doesn't say all of that, not in so many words, no. But the prophecies of Jesus are interwoven, if you will, with prophecies that God was speaking to the children of Israel that were relevant in Isaiah's day that will be relevant until the time of Christ and will continue to be relevant until long after he comes again for the second time in the clouds of heaven. All of that is pictured, woven in and out with messages that God gave to Isaiah to speak to the king of Judah and to speak to the kings of the surrounding nations around Judah of that time. You have to dig to find the story inside the story. It's hidden below the surface. But if we mine down a little bit, we can uncover these gems of truth. And I don't believe it's too difficult. Of course, we have the benefit of being able to read the New Testament as well and to compare the New Testament with the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah and the people of his time didn't have the benefit of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They didn't have the writings of Paul. But I believe that a diligent student of scripture who was willing to dig beneath the surface could have taken the book of Isaiah and gotten a very good picture of who Jesus was going to be. You know, in the past century, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls has confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt the authenticity of the Old Testament scriptures. And do you know that perhaps the most complete in the most well-preserved scroll of all the scrolls they found in the Dead Sea. Do you know what book that was? It was the book of Isaiah. The complete book, and I actually uh, was doing some research and uh, found a website where you can find a translation of what they actually uncovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, an English translation, because I can't read the Hebrew. Uh, you can also read it in Hebrew if you know <laughs> how to read it. Uh, But I found an English translation of it, and and you can go through chapter by chapter and compare what we have today in our Bibles with what's written in those scrolls that have been preserved for over 2,000 years in those clay jars, and it's almost word for word the same as what we have in our Bibles today. Incredible, incredible how God has preserved his word. There's no question that that the scroll of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, is authentic that it predates Christ. No one can say, oh, well, Isaiah was written, you know, maybe several years after Christ. No one can say that. And besides, even before we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, even the Jews today have the book of Isaiah and read it. They don't, they don't try to throw it out of their Bibles. Maybe they do, but I, I doubt it because it's part of, it's part of the Old Testament. You know, recently we, we went through the entire book of Isaiah in our prayer meeting. So, uh, for those of us who were who were there studying together, I know this is a bit of a uh, of a review, Jim and Mary. <laughs> you remember uh, how many how many months did we spend going through four four months? Yeah, yeah, we studied it for quite a while. But I really enjoyed the study. We, we got us some good good discussions. So we obviously can't spend four months in the next ten minutes <laughs> um, studying uh, every chapter and verse of Isaiah. But I want to take a look at it and and look. For the central figure, not Isaiah, but Jesus through Isaiah. On the surface, a lot of Isaiah, like I said, it deals with the immediate judgments, the immediate prophecies uh, surrounding Judah and Jerusalem. There is a dark, dark backdrop, if you will, in almost all of the prophecies. A message of judgment that Israel's going to go into captivity, that is the, the going to go into captivity, that they're going, to, they're going to suffer tremendously at the hands of their enemies because of the sins that they've committed. And yet, it's as though, if you imagine the entire sky is black, but if you look on the horizon, you can see a glimmer of light. And Isaiah, in prophetic vision, could see beyond this captivity, beyond this judgment, and could see a glimmer of light. And that glimmer of light was the coming of Jesus Christ. Both his first coming as a child in Bethlehem, to grow up on this earth, to pay the price for sin, to live as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, to bear our iniquities. Yes, he saw that, they even saw beyond that to his second coming in glory and power, to come and to completely and fully redeem his people to another land, to a new Jerusalem where Jesus would reign forever and ever and ever in a land of peace and happiness where there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death. Isaiah could see that in prophetic vision. And oftentimes, those all of those pictures of Jesus would be merged together in one picture. So it's not two separate pictures of his first coming and his second coming, but often the two mingled together. Often these promises of of the future glory are spelled out in so much much detail that it would be easy to overlook his first coming in sorrow and suffering. But let's take a look. Let's take a look. And I want you to turn with me to Isaiah. We'll be flipping to several different verses. But Isaiah chapter 4 is one of the earlier uh, prophecies that we find pointing to Jesus. I want you to take a close look at the language we we find here. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will will be called holy, everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem." When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, burning. then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining and flaming fire by night. Look at this picture. Who is this branch, as it says, of the Lord? The Hebrew term refers to a sprout, a shoot something very small, but something that grows. It has a life in it that grows and grows and grows. The branch of the Lord brings holiness and cleansing to the remnant of Jerusalem, provides a place of refuge. Remember in the time of the children of Israel, wondering, or not wondering, but but, uh, first of all, leaving Egypt and traveling to the promised land, and then they were wandering in the wilderness. Do you remember how they were led? Was Moses with his staff standing in front of the Camp of Israel leading them? Is he the one that was leading them? There was a pillar of cloud. And at night it would turn into a pillar of fire and would lead them. This is the promise of the coming Redeemer who would be a pillar of fire, and a pillar of cloud, a protection, a guidance. And I love that verse 4, that he will wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion. You see, the problem that Isaiah is dealing with. The problem that God is dealing with here is not so much a problem of outside enemies coming in to conquer Jerusalem. No, the problem is inside. And God has allowed these outside enemies to come in and and, and punish and, and, and to correct and to try to bring Jerusalem and Israel back to God. But the problem is inside. And what is our problem today? Is it not in our hearts the most? And that's the, that is what Jesus came to do to deal with this problem of sin, to give us a new heart, to give us redemption, to give us salvation individually. Isaiah 5 paints a touching picture of Israel. God's people is a vineyard that God has planted. God has done everything that he can to help his vineyard and yet it produces only wild grapes. And God says in Isaiah 5, 3-4, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And God goes on to predict the terrible judgment that would fall on Jerusalem. But Isaiah makes it clear that Jerusalem isn't the problem with Jerusalem isn't their lack of blessing it's a problem that they themselves have created because of their own hearts and that is the problem that this coming Messiah has to deal with in chapter 6 God calls Isaiah God commissions Isaiah to bear a message to Israel and in verse 13 of chapter 6 if you flip over a page or two uh, chapter 6 and verse 13, that last phrase, as a terebinth tree, or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be in its stump. After this terrible message of judgment, yet God says, I'm not going to destroy Israel entirely. Like a tree that's cut down, but there's still life in the stump. There's going to be a shoot that comes up. There's going to be a remnant that is left. And from that shoot, from that branch, Through that branch, I'm going to provide salvation. This is the backdrop. With this in mind, this is the backdrop for a story that we find in Isaiah chapter 7. The wicked king Ahaz of Judah has already suffered a terrible, devastating defeat at the hands of Judah's enemies. Both Israel and Syria were in alliance together against Judah. They'd suffered a terrible defeat. We find it in 2 Chronicles but then Isaiah comes to the wicked King Ahaz. Now, if a prophet of God comes to a wicked king, what does the prophet usually tell the wicked king? Wait, well, yeah, yeah, you're done for. Yeah, 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 your chance is over. Unless you turn to God, your chance is over. That's what the prophet of God usually tells someone who's wicked. But what does Isaiah tell King Ahaz? Here in this story. It's a completely unusual event. God comes to King... Isaiah comes to King Ahaz and says, Here within a very short time, these kings that are against you and attacking you are going to be gone. You're not going to have to worry about it. It's a message of mercy to a king who didn't deserve mercy. It's a message of forgiveness to a people who didn't deserve forgiveness. Well, King a has, uh Isaiah says, what sign shall God give you? King A says, he didn't have any faith in God at all. He says, I don't even want a sign. I don't know. You tell me. And this is the message. This is a beautiful message here. Look at Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. We know this verse. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And I'm going to actually read the, read the next verse out of the New American Standard Bible because I love the translation. It makes it a little clearer. He will eat curds and honey at the time that he knows enough to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread Will be forsaken. Now it seems to be a strange sign that God is giving not so much a sign that Ahaz would see immediately, but it's a prophetic assertion. In other words, when this comes to pass, you will know that what I said to you was true. He's trying to build faith in King Ahaz. He's giving Ahaz a message of mercy. Behold, a virgin will conceive. Now, it's hard to tell how strange this might have sounded to King Ahaz. Now, the Hebrew word here that is translated as virgin, there's been a, quite a lot of discussion about this word. Uh, many Hebrew scholars say, well, this word probably just refers to a young woman, a maiden. Uh, uh, someone who is a young woman doesn't necessarily have anything to do with virginity per se. And indeed, the prophecy that God gave to Ahaz was fulfilled, just as he said. Look over in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. <laughs> and, uh, Isaiah says, Then I went, this is another prophecy kind of going to the same thing. Then I went to the prophet, prophetess, that is his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, Call his name, and I practice this, but I can't know if I don't know if I can say it. Mahershal Hashbaz. I think that's the longest name in the entire Bible. <laughs> Try saying that ten times fast. How'd you like to how'd you like to grow up with a name? Mahershal Has Hashpaz. <laughs> but the meaning of that of that name uh, is, a, is a message of it, it's a Swift to the booty, swift to the spoil, something something like that. I, I have to look it up again. I don't have it written down. But it's a message of deliverance from Judah's enemies. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus, that's the capital of Syria, and the spoil of Samaria, that's the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, will be taken away before the king of Assyria, so the prophecy is given again, but this time in very clear terms that this is talking about Isaiah's, Isaiah's wife and his second son, Mahershal al Hashpaz. Or at least that's the prophetic name that's given to, given to him. But it's interesting that in the song that follows, you find in both verse 8 and verse 10, the theme of the song, the refrain, if you will, of the song, is found in this word, Emmanuel. Now, in Isaiah 7, verse 14, what was the name to be given to the child? You shall call his name Emmanuel. And what is the meaning of Emmanuel? Well, we find it actually in Isaiah 8, verse 10. Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. That is the meaning of that word, Emmanuel. And everyone who was listening to Isaiah knew that this was the meaning of the word. God is with us. I'm going to stop right here and I'm going to share with you. This is something that has troubled me, um, for quite a, quite some time. Why is it that a prophecy that God gave to Isaiah, or to the king Ahaz through Isaiah, that had an obvious and immediate fulfillment, in this case, the birth of Isaiah's son, why is it that this is applied 700 years later to the birth of Jesus. If you look in Matthew, hold your finger in Isaiah, Matthew 1, 22 and 23. We, ac- we actually know this verse by heart, probably most of us. Matthew 1, 22 and 23. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. We know this verse. We know that it applies to Jesus. But why does Matthew apply it to Jesus? Is Matthew going back to the Old Testament, cherry-picking a verse that had something to do with something totally different, and trying to reapply it down here? Or did God, in giving this message to Isaiah, intend this to be a message that was a promise of a coming Redeemer? This is the question that I'll be honest with you, I've struggled with for quite some time. And it was only in a recent recently as I was going through and studying the book of Isaiah again that I realized that is definitely the latter is true. In other words, God was giving a message not just to King Ahaz, not just for that one time, but a message to all of his people for all time that a child is going to be born, going to be born to a virgin, and his name will be Emmanuel, which is God with us. How do I know that? How do I know that? How can I say that this is what Isaiah really meant? What God was really trying to convey, in addition to the immediate fulfillment there in, in, in Isaiah's son, but this the ultimate fulfillment, how do we know that that's true? Well, one way to look at it is to Ask why would Isaiah use this word that's translated to mean virgin? Now, of course, he could have meant a young woman, but if he meant only to, to refer to his wife, why wouldn't he just say a woman is going to conceive and bear a son? Why would he qualify it in this using this term that perhaps means virgin? Now. Again, the scholars have said, well, it probably just means young woman, but we actually don't know. We actually the Hebrew language is many thousands of years old. This was written probably 2700 years ago. Languages change over time, and in fact, for many years the Hebrew language was dead and was comparatively recently resurrected as 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 biblical scholars have tried to Uh, reconstruct the meaning of these ancient words. Well, one way that we are able to reconstruct those meanings is to compare the translations of the Bible, particularly the translation from, uh, from from the Hebrew into the Greek, the Septuagint, which was made before the time of Christ. Listen, before the time of Christ by the Jews. Do you know what word that the Jewish scholars used to translate this verse in the Septuagint was. Well, it's not, I I don't have the, yeah, I have it here. They used the word Parthenos. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Parthenos, which literally means virgin, specifically, not young woman, but virgin. They used that word before the time of Christ to translate this verse. Why would they do that? two reasons. Perhaps for one, they knew something that we don't know. Perhaps they knew that that Hebrew word really does mean virgin, not just young woman. Perhaps. Perhaps they also knew, which I'm going to demonstrate here in just a second, that what Isaiah is telling is not a story about his son, by his wife, but a story of the coming Messiah. Let's take a look at this. At any rate, they used the word virgin. These were not Christian translators. These were Jewish translators who used the word virgin before Christ. And and everybody knows that a virgin does not get pregnant. (laughs) Right? Okay? They used this word in relation to this verse. But here's more clues. Let's take a look at it. Starting with Isaiah chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 4, that verse that we just read, Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 2, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. In fact, even if you go back to Genesis, you find this idea of a coming seed. Who is the seed of? Not the man, but the seed of the woman who would crush a serpent's head. So you get this idea of a virgin, uh, a virgin birth even from Genesis chapter three. But you have this idea that the coming Messiah, Redeemer, would come up like a small branch and would grow up. You find that in Isaiah four. Then you get over to Isaiah seven and eight. We see the pattern of God speaking of a special child a special child who's coming with signified deliverance to all of Israel. But we find the proof in Isaiah 9. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 9. I'll read the first couple verses because it gives us an introduction, but we're really going down to verses 6 and 7. But we'll read the first couple verses. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Notice that Galilee is mentioned specifically right here. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So we're talking about a light, a redeemer who would come, and it's specifically in the context of speaking about where? Galilee of the Gentiles. Who is this great light that was to come to the land of Galilee? We find in verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, starting in Isaiah chapter 4, and going through Isaiah 7 and 8, and then finally culminating in the the full picture, which, I mean, it's not even the full picture in chapter 9, it keeps getting better and better as you go on through the, through the book, but culminating in this full picture, you see that this child is speaking not of Isaiah's child, but of the coming Christ child, the one whose name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. You don't count... Call any human child by those names. No. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, for even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You know, we could spend a whole sermon, probably a series of sermons, unpacking this one prophecy. You know, there's so many people today. I'll go into this more another time, but I've got to say this. There's so many people today who try to say that Jesus is something or someone else other than the Son of God. They say, well, yeah, he's the Son of God, but but that means he's he's, he's somehow less, he's somehow not God. And we have these groups, of course. I'm not down on, uh, on other Christians, but these groups that come around knocking on the doors, um... Uh, the Jehovah's witnesses or sometimes even the Mormons and they, have, they I have to give it to them they're good at their mission work they are good at their mission work and they'll come in the house and they'll study but here's where I here's where I have a rub with with their teaching the whole point of their teaching both of them is that Jesus is not god he's some great prophet he's some great but he's not god but how do you get that when you have Isaiah says right here his name shall be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. I don't know how you get around that. I really don't. Not to mention John chapter chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then it goes on. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, this child this Christ child, was not someone who was born there in Bethlehem and that was the beginning of his existence. No, this was the Son of God. As he says in John chapter 3, and verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That means God already had a Son that he gave to this world. He didn't create a Son in order to give to this world. No, he had a son that he gave to this world. And, and we don't understand the mystery of this, of this incarnation of Christ, how he could come to this world and be born as a babe in a manger. The God of heaven. I don't understand that. I can't begin to fathom that or try to explain it. But all I know is that the word of God it's what it says. And I believe it. Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The child would mean none other than Messiah himself, coming to reign on the throne of David. My friends, woven throughout the prophecies of this book, my friends, is perhaps the most compelling picture of Jesus the world has ever known. Written 700 years before his birth. Isaiah 53, and we don't have time to study that whole chapter today. He shall grow up before them as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. A picture of Jesus' life, suffering, dying on the cross for you and for me. And yet resurrected, glorified, and reigning on the throne of David forever and ever. And as the baby Jesus lay in Mary's arms, as the shepherds and wise men gave their praise and homage to the newborn king, how few understood his mission. As the disciples gathered around Jesus, the multitudes listened to him, how little did they know what his true mission was. And yet if they had studied the prophecies of Isaiah, they could have known even then. And so I wondered about us today. Jesus, my friends, is still alive. He's interceding for us in the courts of heaven. He has made so many promises to us. Through the prophecies of this book, we know what he is doing and what he is going to do. But do we know him? Do we understand the prophecies? Do we care enough to know? I want to challenge you this Christmas season, my friends. The Christmas story is not another story about another Santa Claus, but it's the story of the one who came from heaven to save you and me, study his word, that when he comes again, we may be ready to receive him. Until that day, may we continue to pray, come, oh come, Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel. Loving Father in heaven, Lord, how can we thank you enough for the gift of Jesus? You poured out all of heaven in this one small child to come to sit on the throne of David, but most importantly, to sit upon the throne of our hearts, to cast out the sin. Lord, Lord, May you be born in our hearts today. May you come to us. And may we accept you. And may we believe in you. And may we share your message of your soon coming. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.